30 cents a gallon America was young and strong Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitra Perich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. On today's show, I'm pleased to have Sergei Vikulenko, an energy industry veteran based in Germany who has deep experience in Russian international oil and gas sectors. He has worked for Gazprom Neft, large Russian oil producer, Royal Dutch Shell, and IHS Market Energy Analytics firm. And as you can imagine, we're going to dig deep into all things gas and oil as far as Russia and Europe is concerned. Sergey, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Welcome. Great. So maybe we can start with a big picture. I don't know if you saw, but Jeffrey Sonnenfeld and his team at Yale School of Management, who have been doing just an incredible job tracking Western companies that have been pulling out of Russia since the start of the invasion in February, they've put out an interesting paper this week that makes an argument that the Russian economy is much weaker than most people think. And specifically uh, that, uh, and I'll quote here, when it comes to natural gas, Russia is far more dependent on Europe than vice versa. What, what do you make of that? What do you think is a true story here? Right. Uh, Russia draws most of its uh, export gas revenues from Western Europe. That's true. However, it doesn't comprise uh, that big a chunk of Russian export revenues. It's about a quarter of the total oil and gas revenues and um, something like 15 to 20% of total foreign currency earnings. And part of it is LNG earnings, uh, which Russia might get from other markets. And in the summer, it usually sends its LNG to the Far East. Uh, And that particular earnings do not do much uh, for the Russian state budget, but that's another story. For Europe, of course, uh, expenditure on energy is not that high. It's a relatively low share of uh, the total economic pie. However, it's probably a reflection on how cheap energy is today, really. If we look at how much we spend on energy today and compare how much our grand-grandparents in the 19th century spent on things like hay for horse, firewood, candles, and such, uh, we spend an order of magnitude less than they did. Energy is essentially free today, believe it or not. It's something like 45% of our total spending, and in the past it could be as high as 30%. But, right, we don't spend much on air. We don't spend much on water. But it's a bit difficult to do without air and water. So... From the sheer economic standpoint, indeed, gas trade is not that big of a deal for Europe. On the other hand, energy in general, and gas in particular, is a rather large input for European economy. And it sits at the very starting point of quite a few things. Steel, concrete, gas, uh, chemicals. And if you cut that input substantially, everything else that's derived from gas or energy starts to suffer. Makes sense. Well, let's dig in a little deeper because we've had some uh, really strange things going on 
particularly in the last month, uh, as far as Gazprom is concerned, the large gas provider in Russia. Um, and a lot of it has to do with this Nord Stream 1 pipeline uh, that went offline for maintenance reasons uh, a few weeks back. Uh, there was a lot of concern in Europe that it wouldn't come back. It did come back, but as soon as it came back, the Russians cut, uh, cut uh, uh, the uh, uh, amount of gas that they're sending through the pipeline down to 20%. And they're claiming that they're taking another turbine offline. Do you buy that? Uh, what is truly going on with Nord Stream 1? Uh, to be honest, I think that they're playing games. Uh, that it's uh, false pretenses. That the real Russian strategy is to create a true deficit uh, in gas supplies for Europe. Uh, when we're talking about summer, it's a bit difficult. Uh, in the summer, uh, Europe would be able to replace Russian gas with uh, imported LNG, not every summer. Last summer, when there are droughts and heat waves, droughts in Brazil, and Brazil usually derives most of its electricity uh, from hydropower, but in a drought, it has to replace almost all of that with LNG droughts and heat waves in uh, Turkey, Japan, other countries. So last summer, LNG was a truly short supply. This summer, it isn't. So this summer, it is possible to replace current gas demand with LNG. However, it's difficult to fill gas storage with LNG. Europe still copes, but comes winter, Europe would need both LNG, gas from storage, and Russian pipeline pipeline gas supply. And gas storage is something that's not being filled at the moment. So gas from game is make sure that Europe would crawl on its knees to Russia for gas supply in the middle of winter during cold spell to make sure that happens, cut them both gas supply in winter and make sure that there is no gas in the storage and to make sure that there is no gas in the storage cut supplies now so they wouldn't be able to fill it. Now, is, is there a danger to this game that they're playing beyond just geopolitics? But uh, when it comes to pipeline operations, you know, when you cut uh, supplies uh, to such low levels, um, is there a danger that the infrastructure itself starts to degrade, that, uh, you know, the pumps uh, that are not pumping as much gas will have issues at the fields from which it's coming uh, that are getting uh, reduced production will also degrade? Um, are they sort of uh, cutting their nose to spite their face and doing long-term damage to Russian production or not really? No, not really. You can stop a gas field, you can close the valves and there will be no problem at all. Uh, there will be no issue for gas pipelines and turbines, particularly if just months of stoppage. It's done routinely. The other thing that the Russians have been doing since the start of the invasion is making an issue of the payments, right? So they are demanding that people pay in rubles through Gazprom Bank. Um, and some countries like Finland and Poland have actually been cut off by Gazprom uh, as a result of refusing to pay in rubles. Can you explain to us what that payment system uh, scheme is like? And is everyone complying? Or are they just selectively picking off countries that are small enough that they can cut off without impacting their overall revenues? Uh, let's start in February. Uh, in February, substantial amounts of 
substantial monetary assets of various Russian entities got frozen and seized. Gazprom and Gazprom Bank, its payment agent, uh, were unscathed, but there is absolutely no guarantee that in the 7th, 8th, 13th, 15th sanction package, which Europe tends to uh, vote on almost every month now, there's no guarantee that in one of these packages uh, there wouldn't be a seizure on funds. So you would say, yes, there is some legitimate concern on the Russian side that they want to limit their exposure to the currencies that suddenly become toxic, to the payment mechanism and process that suddenly becomes vulnerable. So that's somewhat justified. They could say, well, please, in the past, you were paying us in euros to our bank account in Luxembourg. Uh, well, please pay now to our bank account in Moscow. Well, doesn't really solve a problem because that bank account in Moscow has to have some sort of corresponding banking, correspondence banking relationship with the bank account somewhere else, Deutsche Bank, Frankfurt. But there's a legitimate concern. Then it's Russian government which says, from now on, we, the government, decide that Russian gas got to be paid in rubles and only in rubles. Well, it's government. So they, can, they can issue such an edict. Now, they have a right to do so. And then... Gazprom might come to its counterparties and say, well, sorry, folks, our contract says euros or dollars. However, it's force majeure. The government told us we got to accept rubles now on and we can't do anything about it. Sorry. So in that aspect, uh, Gazprom is, well, correct. It's not in their contract. On the other hand, there is uh, legislation uh, change clause, and uh, there is also a clause in the contracts on the payment mechanisms. So, fine. Then the government said, uh, you know, we're not vultures here. We are going to design, to design an easy mechanism that would allow gas buyers to buy gas easily. So, okay, here's Gazprom Bank. We allow you to transfer euros to Gazprom Bank. Gazprom Bank does the difficult work of converting euros into rubles and serves as a payment agent. So technically, Gazprom receives rubles. You keep sending euros just as it was. The pricing basis is still in euros or dollars. It doesn't change rubles. Rubles is only a payment mechanism. And then it was up to every country and every company to decide whether that transaction would violate sanctions imposed by European community and European Central Bank. Some countries said that, in their opinion, it is a violation of sanctions because you would have to somehow exchange euros into rubles dealing with the Russian Central Bank, which is a sanctioned entity. So no, they're not going to do anything like that. Uh, They want to keep their hands clean. And yes, it's done by Gazprom Bank, which is not sanctioned, but on behalf of the gas buyer. So no, we don't want any dealings with a sanctioned entity on our behalf, no, we're not paying rubles. Said some countries, Finland, Bulgaria, Poland. Um, other countries said, no, we're not so squeamish. Some German companies said, not, we're not going to do that. They said, well, fine, you're not doing that. You're not getting any gas, your decision. Some other countries said, we don't see any risk. So I don't think it was Russia or Gazprom picking on their victims on that particular respect but it was a self-selection, self-domination. Got it. So, so the countries that haven't been cut off, like Germany, for example, 
they basically decided to acquiesce and uh, pay through the scheme, right? Indeed. But, well, some companies decided that they it was on company-by-company company basis, not on country-by-country country basis. When we say Poland, Finland, and Bulgaria, it's only because there is a single company in Finland called Gazum. There's a single company in Poland called Polskie Gornictwo Naftowe Gazowe, PG and IG, uh, which buy it, and Bulgar Gas. So in other countries where you would have different companies in the Netherlands or Germany, yes, it's what it was a buyer's decision. Now, what else, what else is going on with the gas supplies to Europe? Because you have a number of pipelines that are going to Europe, uh, one going through through Ukraine, and uh, apparently part of that pipeline, I understand, is shut down. The Russians are saying that the Ukrainians have shut it down because it's going through terminals that are now in occupied part of the country. Um, obviously, we know that Nord Stream 2 uh, never went operational, Um as, as uh, the Germans um, basically sanctioned it um, after the start of the war. But kind of walk us through the big picture here of what, what are all the pipelines that are going into Europe and what's their current status? Uh, do you want a rundown on Russian pipelines? or Russian, pipelines? Pipe, Russian pipelines, okay. yes. Uh, starting from the north, there is Nord Stream 1, uh, which can send 55 billion cubic meters per annum, and Nord Stream 2, which can send 55 billion cubic meters per annum. Then there's a Yamal Europe pipeline, a relatively small one, 20. Uh, Yamal Europe goes uh, Russia, Belarus, Poland, Germany. That one was sanctioned as well. Uh, Poland seized control over the pipeline because it was a joint venture between Gazprom and some Polish entity. Poland sanctioned Gazprom. It sanctioned it in a very careful way, so allowing it to pay for gas uh, transmission services. However, Russia said that as contra-sanctions, if you sanction us, we sanction you, so we on our side prohibit uh, Gazprom to deal with, well, effectively to pay for the use of the seized and captured entity. So that is sanctioned on the legal side of limits. Then indeed, uh, there are two huge pipelines going through Ukraine, one is Urengoy Pamare Ushgard build in the 70s, 80s. Uh, that indeed goes closer, further north. Uh, and in there, you have a metering station that's uh, on the Ukrainian controlled territory. That's a rather big pipeline. You can send quite a lot of gas through that. However, uh, according to the contract between uh, Gazprom and Ukrainian side, the annual nomination or that fixed nomination was relatively low, 40 uh, million cubic meters per day. Gazprom, in theory, can book additional capacity there, but it doesn't. On daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly basis, it doesn't. Uh, then there's uh, a large pipeline built in the 60s, 70s, Soyuz going from Orenburg uh, through Ukraine, also to roughly the same distribution points uh, at the nexus of Polish, Czech, uh, Polish, Slovak, Hungarian, Romanian uh, borders where dis where distribution hub is. Um, nomination there was, I believe, sixty million cubic meters per annum uh, per day, and that one is where a metering station on the Ukrainian side got under control of LNR, one of the separatist entities, 
and Ukraine was saying that A, they don't control the metering, so they cannot accept responsibility for any gas coming their way. But also, they were saying that some gas is being siphoned away there for the needs of LNR. And because of that, they cannot take responsibility either. So it's not only a matter of, we don't know precisely how much comes on that end, but also it's a matter, you Gazprom say that you've sent 100, 20 was pilfered by the separatists, but you're still saying it's 100. No, we have nothing like this. Ukrainians were saying, could you please renominate that 60 from Soyuz pipeline to Urengoy pipeline. And Gazprom said, no, we can't do that. Uh, it's a mute point uh, whether they can really do that or not, but, well, they refused. And the plus, there's another pipeline called the Turk Stream. It's a pipeline going from the Black Sea coast of Russia uh, by sea to European Turkey. And from there, there's a connection to Bulgaria, from Bulgaria to Serbia, from Serbia to Hungary, and from Hungary to Austria. So that was one of the two prongs built very recently to circumvent Ukraine. Um, And capacity in there is uh, 15 billion cubic meters per annum. So so in other words, out of all those pipelines, Nord Stream 1 obviously is operational, a beat down to 20% capacity. The, The Turkish pipeline is operational. And then only one going through Ukraine is operational now as well, right? Indeed. So two are down, and uh, Nord Stream, uh, which taken the bulk of the uh, volume recently, is to 20%. Now, how is Europe getting by with, with uh, so much less gas? Now, you mentioned that they're getting LNG from other sources, but you know one of the things that I was hearing before the war is that all of the LNG spare capacity in the world was locked up in long-term court contracts in Asia, and there was no way that Europe could get access to much of it. And then lo and behold, the war happens, and somehow Europe does manage to get additional uh, LNG transports coming into Europe. How did they manage to do that? Uh, By overbeating everybody else. Well, as I said a bit earlier, uh, there is some slack, and that's dependent on weather and hydro capacity elsewhere. So global LNG demand is fluid, and it's weather-dependent. So if you have a warmer winter in the southern hemisphere, for example, you get more gas for the north. If you have cold weather in Japan, not much gas is used for air conditioning. You get more gas for winter. But it's also overbidding. Pakistan, for example, now is complaining that it can't get the energy it needs. So You're basically squeezing the balloon that some countries are getting less than they need and, and Europe is getting more by paying more. Uh, so this gas crisis is not only limited to Europe, it's global. And in Europe in particular, which countries are the most vulnerable? We hear a lot about Germany, of course, you know, Poland and Hungary, very dependent on gas. Are there many others? Or, you know, in France, we know there's, you know, quite a bit of nuclear capacity. Uh, in Spain, they're getting some from North Africa. Like, who is really dependent on Russian gas in Europe? Spain is mostly an LNG country. Uh, traditionally, uh, gas dependency was... Uh, the former Eastern Bloc countries, and Germany. Uh, Finland gets all all its gas uh, from Russia, but Finland doesn't get that much gas. Uh, It has nuclear, it has hydro. Uh, Poland also, almost all of its gas from Russia. 
even if it's gas coming physically from Germany, but it comes from the Nord Stream by backflowing the Yamal Europe pipeline. But again, Poland is a coal country with 80% of energy and heat uh, covered by um, Russian gas. Czech Republic and Slovakia are vulnerable. Hungary is vulnerable, but Hungary is a great friend of Russia. So it gets its gas through the Turk stream. Uh, Bulgaria will get its gas uh, from a new trans-Anatolian pipeline uh, that's getting gas from Shank Denis, filled from Azerbaijan. There's not that much gas, but Bulgaria is not such a big consumer. Uh, so it's really uh, Germany, Austria, Czech Republic, Slovakia uh, that would really fill uh, a squeeze. Also, the Baltic countries, uh, but again, they're quite small and they got their own LNG terminal in Lithuania. Uh, it's going to cost them quite a lot, but in terms of physical volumes, that probably would be covered with them. And, and you know, we talked about how Poland is effectively cut off uh, because they're refusing to participate in the payment scheme in Finland as well. So how are they compensating for their dependency on Russian gas? You mentioned that Poland is actually getting from Germany. Is it just that Germany is getting Russian gas directly and then Poland is buying from Germany? That's exactly how it works. And uh, Germans are becoming more and more crossed about that. But that's the market. That's how it works. Right. Uh, so this this is not Germany helping Poland out of the goodness of their heart. That's just no. they're buying it on the open market and paying for it. That's what the traders do. Yeah. Um, so how important is gas to Russian government coffers? Obviously, the price went up dramatically. It's now, I think, over $2,000 per thousand cubic feet, uh, uh, up from 100-something before the war, just enormous price hike. We're hearing a lot about how Russia is getting so much money from selling of both oil and, and gas. Um, is that really contributing to uh, filling up for the the loss in uh, the volume of gas that they're selling a lot less now, but because of the price hikes that they're making up for it? Is, is that what's contributing to their ability to keep the economy afloat? Uh, three elements to that. First of all, indeed, it's the... Price elasticity of gas turned out to be very much to Russian advantage. Even a small decrease in volume leads to great increase in price, so they're getting just as much in, as in 2019, maybe actually more, maybe substantially more. That's element number one. Element number two is that gas was always, well, okay, it's tens of billions of dollars, but still it's a sideshow. Uh, a sideshow. But- sideshow to oil and oil products. A quarter of the total oil and gas income. So the most the Russian government gets is from oil and gas. Uh, from oil and gas is only a quarter of that, of the total pie. And 20% of the total exports. And third element is that uh, ironically Russia doesn't need uh, hard currency today. The reason is it has nowhere to spend it. So if Russia cannot buy anything from Europe, US, Japan, South Korea, and that's pretty much the case at the moment, if uh, Russian people can't go on their vacation to Turkey, France, elsewhere, can't spend their money there, 
So what's the point of having the currency? Or what's the concern if your currency flow is severely cut? Yes, Russia maintains its trade with India and China. Uh, Russia might divert some of the earnings from the European markets to India and China to buy things from there. But on the other hand, Russia spends Russia sends enough oil and gas to India and China to serve that trade with them. Now, the uh, Russia is right now the second largest producer of gas behind the United States and is actually the largest exporter. And some 90% of its gas uh, is exported via pipelines. Those pipelines, as we just talked about, are either not operational in cases of some of them and significantly below capacity in the case of others. Can Russia start exporting more LNG to other countries like uh, China and and India, uh, for instance, to compensate for the uh, loss in capacity going through the pipelines? LNG is a complicated matter. Uh, Russia has been trying to build an LNG plant uh, in Ustluga, very close to the point where Nord Stream 2 goes into the water, and it's been slow. Uh, that project was led by Gazprom, and that was slow. Novatech uh, has been building uh, second and third uh, stages of its Arctic LNG uh, project. It has been developing Yamal LNG. Uh, no, not Yamal. Art- I think it's the Arctic LNG on the uh, other side of uh, Ob Estuary. Well, pretty much the same part of geography, no mind. Uh, but uh, they've tried to use Russian technology on a smaller LNG train. Uh, the owner of Novatech, Mr. Mikkelson, has been highly critical of uh, the quality of the equipment, of the level of technology, and effectively they stopped that. So it's very doubtful if they would be able to build additional LNG plants without imported technology. It's not really Western. Uh, It could be South Korean or Japanese. It could be German. Uh, So there's a number of suppliers, but they all are in Western land block, if you wish. Uh, There is a plan uh, at the moment, to build a pipeline from Yamal to China, that would be a few thousand miles. And building that pipeline could probably take something like four years, maybe a bit longer. And ca- can they do that without Western co- companies helping out? Yes, they can. They can. Uh, they can manufacture the pipes. They definitely can lay the pipes themselves. It's a good question whether they would be able to manufacture turbines uh, for the pipeline. Onshore pipeline turbines requirements are uh, more lenient than whatever you need for the sea pipeline. Sea pipeline, you have to send gas in one breath on 800 miles journey. Uh, onshore pipeline uh, has a compression station stage every two, 300 miles. So it's much easier. But uh, Russia has been using Western-built turbines uh, for that purpose for quite a while. And whether they can resuscitate manufacturing of domestic turbines, it's a good question. But can can they, they buy them from China? Does China have any? Mm, good question. Don't know. I would doubt, actually. And, and another question on sort of Western dependencies. 
What about the fields themselves? How much are they dependent on Western services uh, firms like Halliburton, Baker Hughes, Schlumberger? They've been increasingly trying to freeze their work in Russia since February 24th. Uh, my understanding is it's mostly concerning new projects at the moment, so they're still helping with existing fields. But if those firms were to fully pull out, can Russia even continue to operate either gas or oil fields uh, on their own? Uh, operating the fields is no problem at all. Uh, drilling new sophisticated wells uh, without modern oil field services might be an issue. There is some oil field services capacity in Russia, which is not linked to this big three or big four Western uh, oil field services companies. However, when they say when they, that they're going to pull out of Russia, this really means that they're going to sell their operations in Russia to somebody. It's usually either former owners of the companies they bought to establish a footprint in Russia. All of them entered Russia by buying Russian domestic oil field services. So they could sell them back to their former owners and request them back to their former names. Uh, or sell it to their management. And then the people are there. Equipment is there. It would be, well, next to impossible for them to pull the equipment outside Russia. Well, actually, there is uh, an edict at the moment prohibiting just that. Uh, 90%, 95% of people uh, working in those oilful services are Russian nationals, and they're quite competent. In fact, Schlumberger, I think, has something like 30% of their global workforce uh, Russian-speaking. Mm. So it's Russians, Ukrainians, uh, maybe people from Kazakhstan, but that's it. And uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, Schlumberger was actually exporting Russian oil food services engineers to their operations elsewhere. Uh, the only weak link is software, though. Uh, many of the things in there are dependent on modern software, and they can probably pull the plug on that. And how useful would be all the hardware without the software is a good question. On the other hand, maybe the uh, smart and enterprising people in there would find ways, you know, to use that software again without uh, say so from the. Well, and, and Russia has a long history of uh, being pretty good at pirating software uh, during many, many decades. Um, another question on gas. Uh, Europe has uh, come out with this plan uh, back in March, right after the war started, the European Commission, that they're going to reduce uh, dependency on Russian gas by two-thirds by the end of the year. Some of this may be already be happening because of the actions that Gazprom is taking on Nord Stream 1, as we talked about. Uh, but then they're also saying that they're going to eliminate entirely their dependency on Russian energy by 2030. How realistic do you think both of these uh, plans are uh, the reduction this year and then the um, reduction by 2030 to eliminate total dependency. Is that is that plausible? Uh, 2030 is plausible. So you could build enough LNG capacity. You could book enough LNG supply before 2030. Uh, of course, now Europe is in talks with Qatar and they say, well, Qatar, we would like your LNG. And Qatar is telling Europe, sure, we'll bid another LNG train or two or five for you. We have a bottomless gas field. 
we wish to draw gas. But uh, by the way, um, we would like to make sure that our investments in that LNG will pay for itself. So could we please have long-term contracts uh, with a formula price? And funny enough, uh, that's exactly what Europe was trying to liberate itself from Russia, which also had long-term take-or-pay contracts with formula price. And the concern on the Qatari side is, of course, well, you want our LNG now, but you're also claiming that comes 2035 or 2040, you wouldn't like to use any carbon fuel. So what are we supposed to do with LNG trains? And that's a bit of a problem for Europe, I think, uh, because people would be reluctant to make investments in uh, gas infrastructure, bringing gas to Europe without uh, guarantees of the payback. But 2030 is feasible. When it comes to oil as well, eight years is a lot of time to uh, get oil from somewhere else, to forget about the Druzhba friendship pipeline, to uh, get its diesel from elsewhere. And by the way, Europe has been buying um, a few million barrels a day diesel from Russia. Um, so that was a substantial trade in there as well. Uh, reducing gas, Russian gas consumption uh, by two-thirds by the end of the year, uh, Oxford Institute of Energy Studies has analyzed that attempt uh, and that claim, that statement, back in March when it first was made. And their assumption was that it's probably doable, uh, just... But A, it would be extremely expensive, and B, it would create a very substantial energy crisis elsewhere. Uh, just to put things into perspective, Russia supplies 150 billion cubic meters of gas to Europe. That comprises roughly a third of the total global LNG supply. So replacing it, replacing 100 BCM of Russian supply with gas means that you would have to, for example, strip Japan of its total LNG supply. And Japan is one of the largest consumers of LNG, right? So you'd need to direct a quota of total LNG trade to Europe. And that capacity doesn't really exist. So that's quite difficult. Then you could, of course, do things like convert uh, European gas-fired power stations to fuel oil, losing their energy efficiency. Gas turbine in combined cycle has 55% thermal efficiency. If you run it on fuel oil, it has 37 and things like this. You could resuscitate coal, nuclear, what's not. But it's a very tough challenge. It's and, an aspirational goal, I should say. Right. And, and, and if Europe does get cut off um, either fully or is not able to replenish its storage capacity because uh, Nord Stream 1 is, is at such low levels, what does that practically mean, particularly for Germany? Um, obviously, a lot of it, industry, as you mentioned, uh, chemical industry, cement, etc., depends on gas. Are we going to see rationing in those industries? Are we going to see massive compression in GDP in Germany um, if, if um, this nightmare scenario comes to pass? I would expect so. 
Again, there are studies initially claiming that getting rid of Russian gas is not going to cost much to German economy. But I think those studies assumed that you could replace Russian gas by other fuel uh, sources elsewhere. And I think that's a mistake. And now it's being realized that it's not going to happen. Then indeed, rationing needs to happen. Uh, there is a good question whether the Spain is going to share it amongst European countries or there will be each country for itself. There are already some signs of uh, tension lines. Uh, some countries say, well, you know, we looked our our future, we preserved our energy supply, so why do we have to reduce our energy yeah, Fran- yeah, France is saying that in particular. France already, is saying right? that. Spain is saying that. Spain is saying we're not supposed. Why do we need to reduce our energy demand? We're not gas pipeline dependent. We are LNG dependent. But guess what? LNG comes with short supply, right? So that's a bit faulty argument. Uh, there are already concerns that transit countries might say, no, 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 we are not letting any of our transit gas through to others until we satisfy our needs. But get a little bit back, uh, Germany is already drafting uh, rationing plans. And then there is, of course, going to be a skirmish of industries uh, running in a beauty parade explaining, no, I am a very important industry. Uh, Yes, I'm chemical industry, but I'm pharmaceutical industry. You cannot turn gas supply to me. Or they could say, uh, you know, I have a furnace. And if if I shut it down, if I shut it off, I would never be able to restart it. And some furnaces are like this indeed. And so I think there are going to be all kinds of arguments of various degree of outlandishness trying to protect their business interest. And yes, it's going to hurt. But when it comes to regular people, you know, there's a lot of hyperbole that's been going around of, you know, people in Germany are going to freeze, you know, if it's a cold winter. That's not going to happen, right? They're going to prioritize cutting off industry before they cut off residential usage. I would think so, yes. Yeah. Um, one last uh, piece on gas, and then we'll switch to oil. But uh, you know, one of the things that people worry a lot about these days, in addition to energy, is obviously the, the uh, inflation in food prices. And gas is critical to fertilizer production. Do you expect um, all of these um, gas challenges uh, supplies to Europe and elsewhere to, to have an impact on uh, global availability of fertilizer? Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm certain on that. Uh, ammonia plants in Europe has been shutting down already last winter. Uh, there's a number of large manufacturers that's been shut down because gas is the main both feedstock and energy input to them. Uh, of course, Russian ammonia manufacturers at the moment are making some incredible amount of money by exporting ammonia. But then if you have fertilizer that's getting expensive, uh, farmers tend to use less of it. And because of that, you have less food. There are some also interesting knockdown effects. Uh, besides ammonia, a fertilizer plant also produces uh, food-grade CO2. Of course, CO2 had a very bad vibe recently, but somehow CO2 is a very important input for food industry as well. CO2 is uh, used in abattoirs to put animals to sleep before they're butchered. Uh, CO2, if you read on uh, food packaging that has been packed in a protected atmosphere, 
this actually means oxygen-free atmosphere, and this means CO2. Mm. CO2 is also used as, you know, dried ice uh, for cold storage, and that's not being produced anymore and uh, or severely limited production. So some of that food supply chain also suffers because of that. Amazing. We, we have a shortage of CO2. You learn things every day. Yeah. Uh, at least in some ways. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about oil. Um, as as you 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 said so eloquently, um, Russia the Russian government uh, revenues depend much more on oil than they do on gas. Uh, so it's able to use gas uh, much more as a weapon. Um, the oil, of course, is much easier to transit than than gas. Uh, so you you can put it on tankers and ship it anywhere in the world. But one of the things that we're seeing now is that China and India, who have been buying a lot more Russian oil as um, U.S. shuts off um, purchases and uh, Europe decreases them, they've been buying at a discount, uh, I think up to $35 a barrel discount. Um, What does that do to Russian government revenues and how does that uh, keep them actually profitable? I understand that the production cost of Russian oil is significantly more expensive than it is, let's say, in Saudi Arabia. So at some point it doesn't become economical. Um, so are they still able to make significant money even with those discounts? Right. The state budget has a cutoff price for oil at something like $42 a barrel. They say we plan government expenditure as if uh, oil price is $42 a barrel and the rest goes into rainy day fund. Well, I'm describing the situation as it was before 24th of February. Russian oil companies usually have their budgets uh, put together at something like 55 to $60 a barrel. So even with discount at the moment, they're getting something like $70, $80 a barrel. So there's a windfall. In terms of terms of trade, Russia and Russian oil companies with a discount are actually better off than they were before the war. You could actually say that Whatever they are getting now is somewhat better than the price they were hoping for before. And it's not that them are getting the discount. It's that the people who are scrupulous enough not to buy Russian crude are paying a surcharge. And and, and with that, they're not suffering at all. And also this discount picture is... Uh, a bit fine-grained. There are Russian companies that were developing expertise on exports and trading and sometimes even wholesale distribution of their crude and oil products from the main hubs like Rotterdam and so on, and they suffer much less. And there are countries, uh, and there are companies that prefer to sell their crude just FOB, Primorsk and Novorossiysk and were at the vagaries of traders deciding that stop what their while uh, to go downstream, they suffer. They are indeed the ones who are paying $30, $35 a barrel discount. The others with their trading arms and expertise are paying much less sometimes, something like 5 cents. And, and, and why is it being sold at a discount? Is it just gouging by China and India knowing that Russia has no other place to go? To some extent, yes. Yeah. And, and to what extent, you know, if Europe does manage to cut itself off from Russian oil, to what extent uh, do you think that China and India and others will be able to take uh, uh, the full um, 
the full capacity of Russia? Can they simply redirect uh, uh, oil to those markets? And, you know, yes, they'll take a hit on the discount, but they will not sell any less. Uh, that's what I expect to happen. You take the same Aftermax tanker, you load it in Norosisk or Primorsk. In the past, the tanker would go on a week or two week journey to Rotterdam, Antwerp from Primorsk or to Augusta in Sicily uh, from Novorossiysk. Well, now that tanker goes on two months journey uh, to Shanghai or Mumbai. Uh, but that additional six weeks would cost you something like four, six dollars a barrel, even on a smaller Aframax tankers, which are absolutely abundant. And, of course, when Europe is trying to wean itself off Russia, it has to get its crude from somewhere. It will probably have to buy Gulf crude. It will have to buy crude from places like Nigeria and other places that was going to China and to the East in the past. It will have to pay them extra for that oil to go to Europe and that free some space and some demand for Russian crude in the East. So the outcome for that would be that the non-squeamish buyers who can buy from wherever will benefit. Shippers will benefit. Europe and Russia will suffer. And, and at the end and of the day, already. at the end of the day, we're just redirecting the distribution, right? Because you know, the same oil is going somewhere else because uh, you know that that source is now going to Europe. Uh, so re- reshuffling of the decks, uh, uh, deck chairs, perhaps on on the on the ship. Uh, so let's step back uh, back to the big picture. This was really fascinating to drill into all the details. But you know, if I if I can paraphrase, you know, the last uh, kind of forty five minute discussion we just had, Sergey, is that you know Russia still has a lot of capacity to use gas as a weapon. That Europe really has uh, is going to have tremendous challenges economically. Uh, trying to uh, get additional gas from from other places, uh, and um, it's not going to hurt Russia as much because it's it's less dependent on gas revenues and oil. It will do mostly fine because it can redirect it. Yes, it'll take a little bit of a hit on the on the discount, but as long as the price stays you know above one hundred dollars a barrel, even with a discount, uh, they'll do better than than they planned. Is that correct? In the short to medium term, yes. So beyond two, three years, Russia will suffer uh, in its extreme and more and more autarky, uh, uh, economic autarky. It will suffer without uh, Western equipment. And any country these days would suffer without imports. That's what your global distribution of uh, division of labor is. But in the next couple years, Russia probably has upper hand on its traditional energy buyers. And what about sort of long-term prospects for production? I mean, there have been projections that production will decline quite precipitously on oil fields um, in Russia. Not quite sure where that stands on gas. Um, I mean, is is that the case that over the long term, this is going to be a huge problem for them? Mm, they would have to, they would probably have to cut back on sophisticated wells. Uh, where a lot of Western technology is employed. So these wells with uh, two miles of uh, horizontal stage with 20 stages or 30 stages of fracking, 
uh, probably it would be a bit more difficult to do those. Uh, so they would roll back their technology by, say, 10, 15 years or something like that. But uh, no, I don't expect any precipitous drop. So mm-hmm. maybe it would be reduced by a quarter or so in something like five years, but that's about it. And fi- final question here, not, not specific to Russia, but um, you know, President Biden just went over to Saudi Arabia asking them to produce more, did not get really a commitment to do so. We're now hearing from MBS that uh, Saudi Arabia may not even have ability to produce more than 13 million barrels a day uh, total um, um, uh, from their oil fields, um, although they're significantly less than that now. How, mu- how much spare capacity is there in the world in general, whether in the Middle East or in the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, to bring additional oil onto the market and, and compensate for potentially trying to blacklist Russian oil? Um, it, does it even exist? Short answer, it's in very short supply. Uh, U.S. spare capacity, okay, no spare capacity. U.S. headroom for growth is something like 750,000 barrels a day. That's the estimation of Department of Energy. And by the way, in the past, when oil prices were at this range, uh, oil production has been growing much faster. But U.S. investors have burned their fingers on investing in oil and gas. They're much more careful at the moment. And even this growth at the moment is going at the expense of ducks drilled on completed wells. So it's taking inventory of semi-manufactured goods and turning them into finished goods. Uh, In the Gulf, uh, the only source of spare capacity is really uh, United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. And between them, they probably have something like 1.5 million barrels a day. There's a Goldman Sachs report uh, from indeed March, April, and their estimation was that by the time that... rise uh, the, of OPIC plus uh, that was put on the drawing board a year ago, effectively the return to pre-COVID volumes, that after that Saudis would have not more than uh, 850,000 uh, barrels a day left. And Saudi's political principle is that they keep at least some capacity, uh, half a million, million barrels a day uh, in uh, spinning reserve, if you wish. Uh, so they have a self-nominated role of World Central Bank and World Real, if you wish, to cushion for things like hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, something like that. Uh, and they could be extremely reluctant to, re- to release those volumes. Part of the reason was that when COVID happened, uh, every oil producing country in OPEC took some of their capacity offline and other capacity was going into decline. That's natural. Wells go into decline. And then they could do one of two things. They could continue drill wells as they've done in the past or they could take idling wells and put them back in production. Economic logic suggests that you don't spend capital if you have idling wells. So everybody, including Saudi Arabia, uh, were putting idling wells back and not replenishing the 
storage capacity. And this is quite noticeable if you look at the drilling reports, uh, drilling rig employment record. So obviously by now, when you're supposed to get back to the pre-COVID levels, well, those wells, they were used before to compensate for decline. And well, your warehouse has been dry. And that's what happened. And just doing the math here, so you know, even if you take all of that spare capacity in the Gulf and in the U.S., that's two, two million barrels and change, and Russia is producing about five million barrels per day, or at least was uh, in, last year, right? So that that that's a lot of capacity to try to replace. Russia is producing nine point five. Oh, nine point five. Okay, nine point five. Russia exports uh, roughly four point five. In in the shape of crude oil and 2.5 as oil products. So yeah. seven, seven and a half altogether. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so, so five, five million roughly used for domestic markets, four and a half uh, um, exported. Two so. and a half used for domestic markets. Oh, two and a half. Okay, got it. And uh, Okay, and then five is refined, two and a half used domestically, two and a half is exported as gasoline, diesel, what's not. Five is exported as crude oil. 1.6 of that is being exported to China via pipeline. You cannot do anything with that. No sanctions will do anything to it. But yes, uh, it's even worse than if you think Russia produces five. No, you cannot replace all that. Yeah. It would be very difficult. Very sobering. Sergey, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really great to deep dive into these really complex issues and really shows you that uh, there are no good answers here and uh, that um, on both the oil and gas, uh, we're in for some uh, turbulent times ahead. So thanks again for joining. Uh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. Very interesting discussion. Thanks a lot. Back when gas was 30 cents a gallon And sweet magnolias lined those country roads 